Unleash the most powerful Pixel ever on the network chosen by Google, Verizon. Pixel 3 has more than just any camera. It takes group selfies, snaps in portrait mode, and helps you always pick the perfect moment with Top Shot, which automatically recommends best picks when no one is blinking and everything looks just right. And the Pixel 3 also has the power of Google Lens, which means you can search what you see. And when you get the Pixel 3 on Verizon, it comes with America's best network. Visit your local Verizon store today or learn more at po.st slash the ringer. Chinook Cedary is committed to quality, not mass-producing seeds as cheaply as possible. Their small-batch roasting process leads to a noticeably better seeding experience, and their seeds come in delicious, one-of-a-kind flavors. There's nothing more American than baseball and spinning seeds. Whether you're headed to the ballpark or watching the playoffs from home, don't do baseball without a bag of Chinook seeds nearby. Head to ChinookSeedery.com and use the code MLB to get 20% off a bag of the best seeds ever. Do you miss me, Miss Misery, like you say you do? This is The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. We are proud to be part of The Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a part of TheRinger.com, home to some great content that I want to preview for you before we get to the show. First of all, our Halloween extravaganza with podcasts, written reviews, and all sorts of coverage of the new Halloween movie, which I'm not involved in because I'm scared to death of horror movies, but we have some uh, braver people on staff who have written about this extensively. Uh, you should also check out our NBA content because the NBA is happening now. It's too much to to all uh, take in on your own, but we have a great staff of writers, including Dan Devine, who's joined the, the team for this series. So please read his stuff and as well as the rest of the uh, NBA staff. And for baseball, Zach Cram, who along with Ben Lindbergh will join me on the show in just a minute, wrote about Craig Kimbrell's untrustworthiness throughout the playoffs so far and whether he's fixed and how it will be more entertaining if he's not. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Mookie Betts potentially playing second base for the first time in several years. Uh, I wrote about that extensively. Both of those are up today. We're going to have more preview and uh, reactive coverage throughout the World Series. So please keep your eyes peeled on the ringer.com. But now, without any further delay, Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh. All right, so the moment is finally here. The World Series, uh, two teams enter, one team leaves. The loser is locked in the basement of Dodger Stadium until March. Uh, And to commemorate that occasion, I've brought in two guests, one of whom will also be locked in the basement of the stadium uh, to be determined at the end of the show, Ben Lindbergh and Zach Cram. Guys, it's here. Yeah, we're ready. We'll just spend a couple minutes quickly on the last two games of the um, NLCS and then move on to to previewing the World Series. Um, That was exciting, briefly. (laughs) Yeah, it was. I mean, so many of the games in this series were close and swung on moments and plays that easily could have gone the other way. The most obvious example in Game 7 being the Chris Taylor catch. On the whole, I mean, I guess you could look at this and say, well, starting pitching beats bullpenning because it did in certain cases. But this was an extremely competitive series. The Brewers out-hit and out-homered the Dodgers. They took it to seven games. I thought they were extremely competitive, and if anything, they showed that this model could work. And in Game 7, even having Hayter go out there, it looked like he could have pitched forever if he had wanted to, just kept throwing zeros up there. And ultimately, it's Jeremy Jeffress, who was just so solid for them all season, who gave up runs at the wrong times, and that was that. Yeah, it was, I guess, a little disappointing that for a seven-game series, none of the final games were particularly close. The 
we had the 13 inning game in game four, but after that, there was a 5 2 game that was 5 1 during the ninth. There was a 7 2 game, and then there was a 5 1 game. So we didn't get quite the late inning drama that really elevates these series to instant classics. But as Ben said, it was still a really entertaining series. Like, I don't think anyone heading into the game would have thought, okay, Kershaw's going to be on the mound in the ninth inning going with a chance to go to the World Series and have that be anticlimactic, but it kind of was. Yeah, and I that we're going to talk about Dave Roberts managing Game 7 and really throughout the series and its implications going forward. That was a very strangely managed game. Like It felt like he was lining it up for just to have Kershaw on the mound for like a feel good moment. And, and I don't know, I don't think that was to like pump up Kershaw, but it was, it almost felt like he was setting up the, the story. And we've seen that come back to, to bite teams in the past, you know, Bill Buckner being the the most famous example, he would have been taken out for a defensive replacement in the ninth or 10th inning of, of most games. Um, it happened to the Phillies on black, black Friday in either 77 or 78. Um, it's, I, I'm glad just for Kershaw's sake that that didn't happen here, but there were, there's a lot of strange uh, managerial decisions in game seven. Yeah. It feels like it's almost a postseason tradition now that Kershaw is supposed to be on the mound when the Dodgers close out a playoff series. And in this case, it wasn't a save situation and he put in Jansen early enough that you could sort of see this developing. Kershaw said that after the game, as soon as he saw Jansen come in as early as he did, he knew that he was probably going to get the ninth. And, You're right. I mean, I think that we would probably be second guessing Roberts's decision making a little more if things had gone slightly differently. If Taylor had not caught that ball, then you start saying, is is Julio Urias really the guy you want on the mound in that situation with his inexperience coming in in the middle of innings with runners on and pitching back to back days? I mean, that was questionable, I guess, as a call. And it ultimately worked out just fine. But there was some second guessing on on both sides. I think people were surprised to see Hayter coming in as early as he did in this game. But I had no problem with that personally. I, yeah, I just, that's not what I would have done. But I, yeah, I don't have. I mean, a problem you, you got to keep it close, and he did. And yes, you want Hayter in the highest leverage spot possible. But this is Game Seven of the NLCS. That's a pretty high leverage spot when you're down a run, and you don't want to get down any further. So. I got that. And you want to make sure that you maximize your use of hater. So probably more questionable calls on Robert's side of the equation. And because it all worked out swimmingly, we uh, don't fixate on them as much as we would otherwise. Just going back to to Jeffress. Um, so this year he posted a, one, a 129 ERA in 76 and two thirds innings. Uh, and I had this in my bullpen piece. Uh, the only other relievers to post an ERA that low in that many innings were Blake Trinan this year and Eric Gagne, and that's it for the past <laughs> 30 years. Eric Gagne in his Cy Young season. And then this seat, or uh, this NLCS, he had a 771 ERA, and I just looked up his, his uh, win probability added, minus .55, which is the worst of anybody in the series. Worst, second worst is Christian Yelich. So you can't predict baseball i guess is the uh the moral of that story so i don't know you guys have anything else to to 
to say about the NLCS. I hope this Brewers team comes back. That they were a lot of fun. I would like to see more of them. Yeah, and I I touched on this in my I guess Brewers 2018 obituary piece, but they have a ton of flexibility and room to add this offseason, and I think they'll need to. They still play in a strong division where the Cubs might well be the favorite again. They, you know, have a lot of starting pitching holes. I don't know if. Craig Council's plans in these playoffs would hold up over a 162-game schedule, but they have one of the lowest payrolls right now heading into next year. I think uh, Lorenzo Cain and Ryan Braun are the only players making at least $10 million. So they have a lot of room. They have prospects they could trade for a starting pitcher. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they don't make it back to the NLCS, but I think they will definitely be a contender again. Yeah, and I hope that the Brewers' model of team building gets emulated. It's just, it's harder, I think. It's harder to replicate what they have done because you can look at the Astros and the Cubs and you can say, well, tear down and be terrible for a while and then build yourself back up again. That That's something that almost anyone can do, not as well as they did it. But if your mission is just, let's be really bad and trade all our good players, then that's achievable. And if you look at the Red Sox and the Dodgers, the model there is, well, have the highest payrolls in your respective leagues and also, sure, draft well and trade well and get talent in other ways, but spend lots of money. Whereas the Brewers model is somewhere in between there. They never really got bad. They never really tore it down. They did spend this winter, but not to the extent that other teams did. So it's kind of like, well, don't be terrible. Just be better at evaluation than all the other teams and get all of these undervalued guys who no one expects that much out of and then go for the jugular and get Kane and Yelich in the same week. So that's a harder model to say, yeah, do what the Brewers did. But I hope teams do. <laughs> well, what I'd say about that is you know, they're, the Brewers are one of – I don't know. The the small market distinction is almost always horseshit. But the Brewers are one of maybe three or four teams in the in the league where I sort of buy the idea that they can't spend to the luxury tax uh, threshold every year and still be profitable. But at the same time, they built up that core. They you know they brought back a lot in trading off Jonathan Lucroy, for instance. Um, and coming out of their last competitive cycle, uh, they have sort of. They've made a lot of smart decisions at at the right times. The, David Stearns, who is a, a Jeff Lunau or a former uh, Jeff Lunau assistant, mm-hmm. um, he identified opportunities really well this offseason. And, you know, Lorenzo Cain was one of the big free agents. And instead of just sit, sitting at the market like everybody else seemed to, he said, wait, we can get a guy who I don't know, would probably be in the top five or seven of my hypothetical uh, NL MVP ballot. For a pretty reasonable price. And they Mm -hmm. struck while the iron was hot with Yelich. And some of that, like, Yelich was not the player he is now 12 months ago. But it's, they've been really smart about knowing when to push their chips in. It's like Mm -hmm. the the Ocean's Eleven speech where, you know, you the house always wins unless uh, when that great hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. And and that's really what they did this year. Um, And with Burns potentially moving to the rotation, Keston Hura is not uh, that far behind. That's another. It, I mean, they they got probably the best hitter, best college hitter in that draft class, way lower in the draft than they would have normally if if Hura hadn't been hurt. Uh, it's sort of like uh, the uh, the Nationals getting Anthony Rendon when he fell to six because of injury concerns, and they they wound up with another guy who's on his day is is one of the maybe one of the top five or 10 players in the National League at at his absolute peak. And so it's 
they've they've done a lot of smart things within even though they're they're one of very few teams that uh, I think does have genuine financial limitations but even within those constraints there's a lot of a, a lot of room to improve your team um if you're smart about it and if you're good at at uh, identifying opportunities the way they have been so it's mm-hmm. I'm I'm very impressed with what they've done to I guess sum this up in a number because that's what I do <laughs> um the the baseball gauge which is a great website has uh this stat called homegrown percentage, which is the number of uh, the percentage of plate appearances or batters faced by players who essentially came up through your minor league system, have been with your organization for their entire career. And the Brewers rank 29th in homegrown percentage this year, only like a fraction of a percentage point higher than Oakland. So that just speaks to how adept they've been at building from bringing in guys from outside the organization and helping them develop and improve and selling guys at the peak of their value, et cetera. All right. Well, let's uh, send the Brewers on their way and go to the World Series. It feels weird only having having the one series to preview. Um, my, my first impression is I wonder if this is going to be the first disappointing World Series in, in a long time. I remember going into about 2010, 2011, and I wrote out all the, the World Series results uh, in our notes for the show just to to uh, put it all in one place. We, we were on a run about 10 years ago of, of just having one disappointing World Series after another. You know, They're really the only good World Series between uh, 2010 and and. 2004. I don't. I don't even know if there was one. Uh, you know, you have to sort of stretch. Maybe 2009 was. Uh, yeah, that was a, a sort of competitive six game World Series, but everything else was four or five games and and pretty predetermined. And I and since then we've had three all time classic World Series in four years. Even the one that didn't go seven games, 2015, had extra inning games, had games come down to the wire, had controversy. Um, I I wonder if the Red Sox are just going to run away with this. I don't look at it that way. I mean, I think in terms of storyline, maybe there are people who have Red Sox in the World Series fatigue or just general Dodgers in the playoffs fatigue. And I can understand that. These are two teams we've seen an awful lot of. On the other hand, I think they are two of the most talented teams in baseball with some of the most watchable, charismatic players, just era-defining players who we want to have on a stage like this. There's beef between these teams and players. There are links. There are interesting storylines that go beyond the numbers. But just looking at the numbers, I don't see it as much of a mismatch, really. I I think if you look at the regular season win totals, yes, you have the Red Sox at 108. You have the Dodgers at 92. They got here in completely different ways. I mean, the Red Sox were clearly going to be in the playoffs all along. It was very obvious that they were going to win the division for months. The question was whether they were going to challenge all-time wins records, whereas the Dodgers had that terrible start. were 10 games below 500 in mid-May, and they were scrapping right up until, well, game 163 to win that division. But if you look at all the underlying numbers, the run differential, the base run standings, the third order records, I know some of that stuff gets a little wonky for people, but these teams match up almost exactly in all of those metrics. I think the Dodgers and Red Sox, they had the second and third or third and second best run differentials in baseball this year. Dodgers had the best run differential coming down the stretch. And if you look at the Dodgers as a full season entity, 
that's pretty different from who the Dodgers are today. I mean, they acquired Machado. They got Justin Turner back. Things changed for them as the season went along. And just comparing the playoff rosters, I don't see it as a big mismatch. Fangraphs has projections going forward where they take the current playoff rosters and sort of how those innings and at-bats get weighted for each player, and they spit out what they would project that kind of team to win over a full season. And the Red Sox would project as a 102-win team, and the Dodgers would project as a 101-win team. And now, obviously, it might not play out that way. It very well could be a Red Sox sweep. They have home field advantage. They've obviously played better in the playoffs thus far. But I'm also kind of with Ben, where I think just looking at the standings and the difference between these teams overstates the the gap. I'm not sure if there is much of a gap. I think we'll obviously talk about the specific areas where teams have advantages over the other. But when I think about some of those those sweeps from the the mid-aughts, it was... I think generally clear going in that one team just had so many more advantages in all facets of the game than the other. Whereas in this series, I think there are areas where the Dodgers have legitimate advantages and could press on those. And if they turn out to be important, that could very well lead to a Dodgers, even if they don't win, like pushing this six or seven games. See, I don't necessarily agree that, you know, you think of the 2004, for instance, the Cardinals team that got swept in the World Series won 105 games. Like that's, you know, you mentioned the Dodgers bringing Machado. Like, I don't know, is Machado sort of a like for like replacement for for Corey Seager? Um, is David Freeze gonna gonna be the guy to make the difference? And you know, the Red Sox picked up Nathan Eovaldi, who is suddenly their reliable number three starter. And you just look at at the way the similarly top heavy but also not as good Brewers lineup was able to get to Kershaw and get to Ryu at times during this series um, or during the the NLCS versus. You know, I don't if Yelich and Kane and and Travis Shaw can do that, then what can J.D. Martinez and and Mookie Betts do? And that's the what this comes down to. I think the Red Sox have just an extraordinary, an extraordinary amount of talent. I think it's I don't know that we really appreciate how much damage Mookie Betts is capable of doing in a in a playoff series. And, you know, I this could go seven games. This could be a Dodger sweep. Obviously, you can't predict baseball. And projections are very much, that's not the tool I would use for something like this. It's 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 like using, you know, it's it's very broad. It's it's almost like war projection systems are. It's, it's good for taking a 30,000-foot view of the series. And this really will come down to individual batter pitcher matchups. And the trick is to just figure out who's going to, who's going to face who and what and who's going to have the advantage in key spots. And and so, I don't know. I I think this Red Sox team's a lot better than this Dodgers team, but... Um. I don't know. You, you look at individual areas where one could have an edge and maybe you guys see a, a clearer difference between them in some areas than I do, but... You look at, say, the AL-NL thing, and you know, we can talk about the decision about whether to play Mookie Betts at second base in the NL we games. We yeah. will absolutely talk about and that. And you've written about that, but you look at the Dodgers, and there are many NL teams that don't set up well for AL ballpark games because they don't have a, a designated hitter as someone who is really cut out for that role, whereas the Dodgers have too many hitters. I mean, they have mm-hmm. more good players than they have positions. So I don't see that as something that will hurt them at all. There's a lot of left-handed pitching in the series, a lot of left-handed starting pitching, but I don't know if that favors one team over the other because both of these teams are not at their best or haven't been at their best against left-handed pitching. 
These were the number one and number two teams against right-handed pitching during the regular season, and both of them take a hit against lefties, probably more the Red Sox than the Dodgers, but it's it's something that I think hurts both of them. And so I don't know that there is a, a clear and obvious difference here. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how will the Red Sox win in the playoffs with this bullpen, and now we're not talking about it as much because they've had a couple good rounds, but are you that much more of a believer in the Barneses and Workmans and Braziers of the world than you were a few weeks ago? I mean, those guys have been effective, and they had a lot to do with how the Red Sox got to this point, but they weren't all that impressive if you just look at, say, strikeouts and walks. They weren't necessarily blowing guys away. And maybe Craig Kimbrell is fixed now. Maybe there was a a pitch tipping issue, or maybe it wasn't that all along. He looked a little better, obviously, in his last appearance, but still a lot of questions about that bullpen. And not that the Dodgers is the Brewers bullpen, but I think at least you have a little more confidence maybe in Kenley Jansen than you do in Craig Kimbrell at this point. If the if the Dodgers, that is one area where I think the Dodgers do have a clear advantage is in pitching depth because um, they have four starting pitchers I trust and the Red Sox don't really. Yeah. And But at the, you know, at the same time, they got through the Yankees and the Astros relatively easily. And, you know, American League versus the National League, it's not about how they're going to set up with the DH because I think even, like you said, the, the Dodgers are deeper off the bench with good hitters, they can find somebody to to, to DH in these four games and, and be just fine. And the and the Red Sox, even if they don't play bets at second, I think benching Bradley for the or using him as a situational sub for for the middle three games, it would work out just fine. Um, but it's the the top of the American League was so much better than the top of the of the National League, and I think the the Dodgers are the third best team that the the Red Sox could have faced, and that's or the Red Sox will have faced um, in this postseason. So as far as the the bulk pen goes, I actually am a little more confident in Matt Barnes and Ryan Brazier. If Brandon Workman starts pitching, then all bets are off. But you know they, they got through this. They got through this against a much tougher Astros lineup, not getting that much from Chris Sale. Um, you know, he only started one game and they lost. And so it's... I, I think if they get two two starts out of Sale and Sale pitches well, that's going to be I, at this point in their career, Sale is better than Kershaw, and having a number one starter, you could say that about is is huge. So you know it's it doesn't happen that often in, in the postseason. Um, so I I don't know that I'd go so far as to pick the Red Sox in four or five, but it's I think there's a, a clear advantage on paper here. Yeah, I think talking about the paths they've taken to get here, they're obviously disparate. The Yankees and Astros being much better than the Braves and Brewers and also the Rockies if you want to throw in the Dodgers tiebreaker game. But I'm not 100% sure that's looking back as predictive. The interesting thing to me is that the more I look at this Red Sox team, not necessarily who has performed well in the playoffs thus far, but like who I trust more and what I think will happen is they do remind me a lot of the Astros team the Dodgers faced last year because although like Betts and Benintendi have been their worst hitters in the playoffs thus far, I think you would take the top three or four in the Red Sox lineup with Betts and Benintendi and Steve Pierce against lefties and J.D. Martinez. That's kind of reminiscent of the really dynamic top of the lineup Houston had last year. And Boston is being sort of flexible with their 
bullpen and who pitches, they've used Porcello and Eovaldi and Sale in relief, kind of like Houston used guys like McCullers and Charlie Morton in relief last year. And there's also the Alex Cora connection because he was the bench coach in Houston last year. He's the manager in Boston this year, and he's kind of the reason that Boston is being so flexible with those decisions. And I'm not sure if it will play out like it did with the, the Dodgers and Astros last year that obviously that series had some games that are highly unlikely to be replicated. But given that LA played Houston so closely last year, I wonder if it's just the question that we've debated on this very podcast before, which is how much worse are this year's Dodgers than last year's? And I'm just not convinced that they are. I, th- I think the Red Sox are the favorite basically everywhere you look in Vegas and the odds, et cetera. And I'm not arguing that they're not. I just don't see as huge a chasm between these teams because we just saw two similar teams play a seven-game classic series last fall. And let me say one other thing about the the left-handed pitching. I think, if anything, that favors Boston because that gets you the strong side of the of the pl- and. You know, the flip side of this is that all three left-handed starters that LA is going to throw out there are really good. So it's hard to say that facing Kershaw, I'm not saying that facing Kershaw and Ryu and Hill is an advantage, but that gets you the stronger side of the first base platoon with Pierce over Moreland. And most of Boston's uh, best hitters are right-handed. Martinez, Betts, Bogarts, I mean, they hit everybody, but having a pretty left or a pretty right-handed middle of the order, I think is, they're going to do just fine. Uh, so I don't, we can. I'd like to talk about sort of the knock-on effects of that, uh, and maybe we can go to that now. But I, I don't think that facing all those lefties is going to be a disadvantage for Boston. Yeah, I'll just say I don't know that there is a clear sale over Kershaw advantage. I, I agree with you that during the regular season, Sale was the more dominant. Starter. Oh, are you do? Are you doing playoff <laughs> Sale? Is this what we've moved well, on to now? Playoff now Sale in the sense that he was recently hospitalized. <laughs> That's the playoff Sale I'm talking about. I mean, there were questions about Sale coming into the playoffs that I wrote about for the Ringer because his velocity had been down and he was his mechanics were off by his own admission and. He had been on the DL twice with shoulder issues coming down the stretch and hadn't even pitched into the sixth inning since July, I think. So there were a lot of questions about whether he was himself even coming into the playoffs. And that was before he was then hospitalized and lost weight. And he's had a lot of rest since. You think it's possible for him to lose weight? (laughs) Apparently so. I wouldn't have thought so, but (laughs) evidently, reportedly it is. So, and I wonder whether it might affect him more than the typical player to lose five pounds because he doesn't have five pounds to lose. That's as a percentage of his body. Weight, that's a that's a pretty high percentage. So I don't know what to expect from Chris Hill at this point. I mean, he could be his usual self and totally dominant. He's certainly had a lot of rest since his last start, but that rest has been like bed rest with IV fluids. <laughs> so I don't know that 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 favors the Red Sox necessarily. If he comes out in his his usual fully effective self, then yes. But I think there's a lot of room to think that that might not be the case. And can I just say, I think Cora's done a very fine job during these playoffs, but I think he's probably getting a little bit too much credit for using starters in relief. I mean, that's kind of a standard postseason move, right? The Dodgers have done that too. They've used Kershaw. They've used Rich Hill. I mean, it would be malpractice if Cora were not using Porcello and Evaldi from time to time, given the bullpen that he has. So to me, that uh, that's kind of obligatory. I mean, I, I think it's good that he's done that, but I don't see it as extraordinary. It's not like Craig Council's Wade Miley gambit. 
I'm reaching a point where I just feel like I have to steer into this bit because I wasn't <laughs> expecting this level of resistance to the idea that the Red Sox are the superior team. Here's what I'd say about about Cora. I don't think he's doing anything revolutionary, but I don't think he has to. I think mm-hmm. I don't think he had the better team against Houston, but with a 108 win team, you don't have to get creative the way Council did. I'd almost rather Cora be a little bit more conservative because we saw moments throughout this throughout the NLCS in particular where Dave Roberts getting creative created opportunities for the Dodgers to sort of beat themselves. And so I if there's one manager who I am I Roberts is probably more likely to pull a rabbit out of his hat, but he's also more likely to make the one managerial mistake that that dooms his team. Mm-hmm. So I I it's sort of a higher floor, lower ceiling from a tactical perspective with Alex Cora. And yeah. I think that's just fine with this roster. I think we all as baseball analysts like to value the process over the results when it comes to discussing managerial decisions. But if I mean what ultimately matters is the results, I think basically every button Alex Cora has pushed in these playoffs has worked, whether it was uh, switching to Brock Holt for a game against the Yankees and he hits for the first cycle in playoff history or throwing these pitchers in relief. Or I think when he brought K- Craig Kimbrell into the eighth inning against Houston, we all sort of questioned it and he made it interesting, but it worked. And he started David Price on short rest, which didn't seem like necessarily the smartest option, but then that worked. So he's on a, a very hot streak right now and it's not like he has that much further to go. Maybe Maybe it's time for our our Mookie Betts at second base decision now because that, if he does that, would be sort of the biggest heat check he could take at this point. And if that ended up working, then he would really go down in the pantheon as having one of the greatest October runs of a manager. So I wrote 2,500 words on this. I want this to happen more than anything else uh, in this World Series. Um, Ben, where, where do you stand? I definitely want it to happen, and maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way, but to me, it seems almost like the obvious solution, right? I mean, look, Mookie has played second base. This is not a case where you're talking about sticking someone in a position he's never played before. I mean, J.D. Martinez has never played first base in the majors, so if they were to stick J.D. Martinez at first base, that would be really risky, risking something. They're not going to do that. I don't think they should do that, but... Mookie played second base in a game earlier this year, filling in for an injured Ian Kinsler for six innings. He played second base exclusively in the minors five years ago. He's got something like 2,000 minor league innings. Right. He played there regularly as recently as four years ago in both the minors and the majors. He's young. He is one of the most athletic players in baseball, I think it's fair to say. He's a really good defensive player. I just, I don't see it as that much of a stretch when you have someone whose legs and whose bat are as valuable as bets. I mean, yeah, maybe it's a step down from Ian Kinsler defensively, and maybe there's a higher chance that he's just going to make a a terrible flub at some point because he hasn't been playing the position regularly lately. But we've seen the second base defense that teams put up with from starters, whether it's Max Muncy or Daniel Murphy on the Nationals playing second base. I mean, that kind of thing can be exploited, but I don't think Mookie is even likely to be exploited in that way. So I I think you almost have to do it, assuming he's comfortable with it, assuming he looks comfortable with it in practice. I I just don't see why you wouldn't. Uh, I liked your piece, Michael, because of how it laid out what the alternate options are and the Mm -hmm. pros and cons to them. And 
J.D. Martinez, not only has he never played first base before, but if the Dodgers are starting a couple lefties in those games, you want Steve Pierce's bat in the lineup too. I think, as you wrote, sort of the safe choice would be to start Martinez and right and Betts and center and then use Bradley as a late game, maybe pinch hitter against a right-hander and then a defensive replacement, maybe right. a pinch runner. And Particularly because the Dodgers are probably going to start Hill and Kershaw for two of those games in, in L.A. And as much as I downplayed the impact of left-handed uh, starting pitching versus the Red Sox, Bradley is one of the few guys, Bradley versus lefties is one of the few platoon matchups that would worry me if I were Alex Cora. So you could make an argument that he wouldn't be in their best lineup anyway. But game three would presumably have Walker Bueller starting. And then even if it's just for one game, I think it would be fascinating to see what happens with Betts at second. I'd be perhaps a little concerned about a potential collision if Manny Machado is running to Mm -hmm. second to try Mm -hmm. to break up a, a ground ball. I wonder if that plays into you know, as a determining factor at all. But I I mean, as fascinating as that decision would be, also, it would probably only be for like six or seven innings, right. whether it would involve, like if the Red Sox have a lead, they would obviously move bets back out to the outfield in the late innings as a defensive replacement. If there's a lefty reliever coming in, maybe they pinch it for Bradley, et cetera. So it's one of those things that's fun to talk about for the next, you know, 36 hours, but ultimately might not matter all that much, uh, but it's, I think, one of the the factors that makes this series really compelling from a strategic standpoint. Yeah, I'm less worried. I, the collision thing is, and I don't think I mentioned this in the, in the piece, but I'm less worried the bets would be bad or make an error than I am that he would get hurt. And that that would be just because of the, the you know, I don't know how much playing second base in the major leagues is like riding a bike, but there's got to be some sort of lag doing it for the first, not literally the first time, but practically the first time in a game in four years, you know, taking uh, the pivot with Dustin Pedroia on Sunday morning is not the same as, as turning a double play with Yasiel Puig bearing down on you. So that, that strikes me as the biggest risk. But like you said, this lineup is whatever, however they line up in the in the three games in Dodger Stadium, it's going to change throughout the course of the game because they have they're going to leave somebody useful off the bench. But I I don't know. I, I think playing it safe and benching Bradley is entirely defensible, even if it would be far less interesting than than seeing bets. Um, I don't think playing Martinez at first is a good idea, and I don't think Alex Cora has really entertained that. Um, at least publicly. Um, the other thing I'm interested in is Betts just turned 26. Like, they're, I don't know, like, I'd consider moving him back to to first base full-time, or not first base, second base full-time, you know, depending on on what happens to Dustin Pedroia. If he comes back to play next year, if he's ineffective, you know, I I don't know. I, I think having that, having Betts have the ability to play second base and demonstrate it and making it part of his game once again, I think would be huge for the Red Sox, not just in the World Series, but going forward. I don't know if I would go that far over a full season. I I think Betts is probably the best defensive right fielder in the majors. And maybe that's the Manny Machado question when he was the best third baseman in the world. Like, do you mess with someone who's that good at a less premium position to move him to shortstop where he might only be average or just good? Uh, But I don't think second base is the the defensive upgrade over right fielder that would warrant like moving the best right fielder in the world to a 
relatively new position. I, I don't think I would mess with what's working with Boston, who, as you wrote, has the best outfield in the majors. Well, who would you... The counter-argument is you could get a much, much better bat to play right field than you can to play second base. So you could just... We're demonstrating that in exactly those terms by potentially moving J.D. Martinez there. We are moving, I, I say, <laughs> as, as if we're pulling the strings in this series. Yeah. Well, Mookie does everything so well that we can just kind of envision him everywhere. I mean, he's only in right field to begin with because the Red Sox have a truly elite center fielder in Bradley. If they didn't, Betts would probably be a really good center fielder too. And as it is, he's in a right field where it's pretty important to be a good right fielder in Fenway. So I think that helps the Red Sox more than it might in a different park. And I don't know, just kind of net net, whether he's more valuable at second base or right field. He's so good at right field that you probably shouldn't assume that he would be equally good relative to other second basemen at second. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, there could be some. It depends on who the next guy is. Who yeah. The other who right. the hypothetical other second baseman. There could be some right scenario players. where it's just the most efficient allocation of your resources and your talents is to put bets at second just because you could get a better right fielder and you don't have an option at second. So I could see that world. It's not a bad thing to have him have that in his toolbox, at least. All right. We're going to come back with some predictions and more World Series preview coverage after these messages. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. Not to mention, Bombas stay-up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark, and the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. So whether you're a runner, a power walker, or a power lounger, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. Now, now, personally, I look forward to getting through this cold Michigan winter with Bombas socks on my feet. Saying goes, you're only as comfortable as your feet are, and you need good socks to get through a winter like this. And Bombas, they feel like Yasiel Puig's enthusiastic embrace. So if that sounds good to you, you too could own a pair or many pairs of Bombas socks by going to bombas.com slash MLB and using the code MLB for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB, code MLB, and you'll get 20% off your first order. G Suite is a suite of cloud-based productivity tools that includes Gmail, Docs, Slides, Sheets, and Drive. These tools improve your work life, both in terms of your experience and the outputs you create. Hence their new campaign, Make It with G Suite. You know when you have 20 identical versions of a document labeled Final and no clue which is the latest, so you make another version and you name that one Final Final, right? Well, with G Suite by Google Cloud, the range of work apps like Gmail, Docs, and Slides lets you make real-time updates to the same document without having to keep track of version after version of a single project. And since all the tools are cloud-based, your whole team can access the same document and work on the same page at the same time. To find out more about G Suite's productivity tools, visit gsuite.com. That's gsuite.com. Make it with G Suite by Google Cloud. And we're back. So let's, uh, one thing we didn't talk about with the National League Championship Series is the crotch choppage. I think this was a, a different Dodger team in, just in terms of, of attitude and intensity in, in Game 7 than they really demonstrated earlier in the series. So do we take anything from that looking forward? Is it? I, you know, I loved watching it. It was a lot of fun. I wish baseball was was this chippy all the time. But you know, what can we take, take uh, 
from that Game 7 performance looking forward. Yeah, you had crotch chops, you had crotch grabs. There was all sorts of groin activity on the Dodgers' side. The more crotch, the better, (laughs) as I I always say. I agree. I think there's not enough crotch in baseball. But I think that you're going to get more of that kind of attitude just because Yasiel Puig is still in the series. And that's how he plays with a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. And that's kind of how Manny Machado plays, too. I mean, it's been portrayed as a heel turn, what Machado has done this October. But I think it's just kind of how Machado has always been. It's mm-hmm. just that we're paying more attention to him now Nobody that he's not with the Orioles. The Orioles. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's the takeaway from Game 7 of the yeah. And obviously, there's a lot of history and bad blood between the Red Sox and Machado. They had their beanball war last year. Machado called them cowards. He criticized the entire organization. I don't know how much that sentiment is lingering, but it could very easily flare up again. I'd be sort of surprised if there wasn't some kind of controversy in the series involving Machado or Puig. It's just these are demonstrative players who are not afraid to be confrontational at times, or sometimes they're not even attempting, uh, intending to be, but it's perceived that way anyway. So I would think that that will be something that surfaces at some point. And it's not like, you know, the Red Sox are necessarily short on emotive personalities either. Uh, Not necessarily, you know, Chris Sale cutting things up in the locker room, but he is emotional on the mound. They have players who celebrate a lot when they score, and none of this is a bad thing. I think one of the enduring images from last year's World Series to me is when Carlos Correa hit that home run in game five and literally stopped running on his way to first base to do his like fist pump. And I could see more kinds of, of images like that from this series. I hope it doesn't escalate more. I I was pleased to see that the Brewers and Dodgers didn't actually start throwing at each other after the Machado scuffle at first base, because I think that's when these kind of antics take a turn for the worse but they took it up to the line and didn't cross it. And I think that's better for the sport. Yeah, I think everybody, well, I think, first of all, I think players understand that you don't throw up at people in the World Series just because a single base runner is not something you can really afford to throw away or to to give the other team at this point in the season. Um, you know, you talked about the, the Red Sox being emotive. It's weird. I'm interested to see how they react just because in my head, they... They're very emotive and demonstrative, but it feels like a very happy, positive energy. And mm-hmm. I don't know if this is just Betts and Bradley like coming off as just such nice guys. I don't mm-hmm. know if they're they're capable of and and Bogarts too. Yeah, you know, I don't know if they're if they've got the the really mean uh uh side that that it would take to to really escalate this. I'm very interested though in what we saw uh in game seven about of Yasiel Puig as an emotional catalyst. And uh, the, the coverage of Puig has been weird from the moment he arrived in the big leagues, but I'm very interested in the the kind of player he's become, not just uh, on the field, but he, it seems like the Dodgers feed off him. And Machado is sort of, uh, Machado is what he is. And some of the other big names in that Dodger locker room, like Kenley Jansen and Clayton Kershaw are sort of steady as steady as she goes types. But, you know, you could see Muncie and Bellinger and, uh, um, and Rich Hill to a certain extent, like getting into it because Puig is is like giving him the the up and at him. So it's I don't know. That's one of the fuzzy, um, intangible bits of baseball that you know it's it's hard to quantify. But it's 
I don't know, Puig is, has looked almost leadershipy in his own way. And, uh, you know, imagine saying the, that about him when Zach Greinke was uh, trashing him all the time off the record and, uh, you know, messing with his luggage or whatever it was he did. Like, it's it's interesting to see Puig really take uh, a leadership role in this team. Yeah, from the moment Puig broke in and became so controversial, I've been looking forward to the day in the future when he would transition into that leadership role. It doesn't always happen, but so many times it happens that once you get past a certain age, you start seeing articles about so-and-so, oh, he was a hothead when he was a young, brash rookie, and mm-hmm. now he is Dustin mature. Dustin is a good example. Yeah, right, and he's a mentor to the young players. I mean, we're not quite there with Puig yet, obviously, but he has rehabilitated his image as a player. I mean, there was a perception that he was done when he went back to the minors. You, there were scouts saying he just his body was slow and his swing wasn't the same and he wasn't going to be back. And he's not a superstar stats-wise, but he's a really valuable player. And I think we're getting to that point where he's not a, a clubhouse distraction to the point where he was now. And maybe now he's even crossed over into the line where He's a positive in that his excitement is infectious. So there are so many players in this series I like and am rooting for on an individual basis. I don't have a rooting interest in the series, but I'd like to see Kershaw get a ring. Sure. I'd like to see Price continue to combat the postseason narrative. I'd like to see Betts shine on the big stage and show why he's so good. I mean, there's so much that I'm looking forward to seeing with certain players in the series that even if you are kind of tired of these two franchises being in it, there are a lot of really compelling players and Rich Hill, for that matter, making his return mm-hmm. to the Red Sox who resurrected him. I mean, there are a lot of fun personalities in this matchup. We should point out Puig, not just an emotional catalyst or an emotional leader, he's been doing it on the field too. He has a 962 OPS in the playoffs, which ranks fifth among all players who have been playing every day. And the top four is Chris Taylor, who has been quietly very good for the Dodgers, and then three Astros, who I think bolstered their numbers in the late inning against Cleveland. But Puig has been an awesome hitter. It wasn't just the basically game-clinching home run in Game 7. He's been consistently on base. He's been consistently hitting for extra bases and celebrating before the ball even leaves the infield. So this has been a regular thing for him. And, I mean, he he is one of the few hitters who exhibits, a, I think, a, a notable reverse platoon split. So I'll be curious to see how much he plays against the left-handed pitchers going back to that theme. But I would bet he's up to bat in some big moments in this series. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you brought up the home run because that bat flip, I mean, that ball scraped over the wall. And, I, you know, you if you watch the camera angle, it was on Puig the whole time. You can see, like, he just goes into an all-out sprint for, like, yeah. 40 feet or so because he realizes he might have guessed wrong. And I'm... It would have been funny, but it wouldn't have been funny enough to be worth the takes of an early bat flip costing a base. Because, I mean, that's just... The worst thing to yeah. to read about, but yeah, I mean they're they're likable players on both of these teams. They're guys who have suffered through all sorts of uh, playoff disappointments, you know, on on both sides. I think you know if you just make it a point to avoid Boston fans in your in your real life, insofar as that's possible, uh, I don't know if there's a bad outcome for for this World Series. So let's uh, get to predictions. Is there anything else? Well. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about before we 
we uh, do our predictions because we've sort of tipped our hands, I guess. But go for it. All right. I'm picking Red Sox in six. For some reason, we've gotten pushback for not picking the Red Sox as if it's it's very strange. Uh, but I guess, you know, you got to take your nobody believes in us where you can get it. Um, I think all of us have picked against the Red Sox at every opportunity because uh, Ben and I both had Yankees in the division series and we all picked Astros in the LCS. So congratulations on picking the Red Sox now. And I will leaven that. Uh, by mentioning that I am two and six in series predictions <laughs> so far, while the Cespedes family barbecue inanimate plinko board is eight and zero, so yeah, so take that take that for what you will. I've been picking against the Red Sox only because they've gone up against two really incredible teams. I think the other two best teams in baseball. Right? Yeah, I think yeah. so too. And so it's not a slight. It, I guess it is in the sense that I don't see them as a true talent 108 win team. So if you're saying, well, they won the most games in baseball, therefore they're automatically favored in any series, I would disagree with that. But I think they're a great team. And it's funny because we have talked about these two teams differently in this series, but I think I'm going to make exactly the same prediction that you made. I'm going to say Red Sox in six because I do think the Red Sox are the better team. I, I just think it's a really, really slim difference, and I wouldn't be surprised to see any outcome. I'd be sort of surprised if it's a, a sweep either way, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the Dodgers take this, but I am going to go with the Red Sox. So I, I feel like we spent the whole time talking about, you know, you you think the Red Sox are way better and I think the Dodgers are better than you think, but we're ultimately coming down on yeah. the same side of the fence here. My going to six is, is sort of a hedge against something weird happening, like mm-hmm. Bueller throwing a complete game shutout or a Kimbrel meltdown uh, where he walks five guys in a row. Um, so it's just neater, I think, to have them clinch at home. But I, I think we're coming... Even though we ended up at the at the same place, you can understand we're coming at, at that number from different directions. Mm-hmm. So where are you gonna Red Sox and six, Zach? We need we need game? a holdout. And I I think I'm gonna go with Dodgers and seven. Oh um, wow. The and again, this is actually not against the Red Sox. I wasn't on with you guys when you picked the Yankees Red Sox series. I would have picked the Red Sox in that series. So even in retrospect, I guess we have one person who would have done that. As even as I find this series, I just think Dave Roberts has just a little bit more to work with from the last few spots on his roster, especially as Ben said earlier in an American League ballpark where he can start Matt Kemp against a left-handed pitcher, remove that after two batters, and not run the risk of running out of hitters like he did uh, in the series against Milwaukee. I think in a series I find this close, that matters to me, but ultimately it probably will come down to like, does Mookie Betts have a better series or does Manny Machado have a better series? And it's hard to predict that. But the one thing I do know is that I trust David Fries as he's used and Matt Kemp as he's used and Jock Peterson as he's used in those specific circumstances than I do like Eduardo Nunez or Ian Kinsler in any situation. Say I give you three to one odds that, that Dave Roberts loses the DH at some point in this series. Oh, I, I'd 100% take that. I think <laughs> I think there's definitely a scenario where Say he pinch hits for Max Muncy at some point against a lefty, and then he realizes that he wants Cody Bellinger at first base and doesn't have enough outfielders, et cetera. I think that's certainly a possibility. Or he pinch runs with Kike Hernandez for Matt Kemp and and winds up needing to use him at second base later in the in the game. Yeah, I that's that's something I'm gonna be looking for. Um MVP picks. I 
I think Mookie Betts is going to be the pivotal player in the series. I think if he shows up, uh, the Red Sox are going to win this. If if he puts up like, I don't know, the kind of performance we saw from Alex Bregman in the division series, then the Red Sox are going to win this easily. If he no-shows, then this is wide open and he becomes even more pivotal if he uh, starts at second base in the, the middle three games of the series. Uh, so while I think he's going to be the linchpin, I'm going to make it a clean sweep of Gamecock MVPs and pick Steve Pierce to be your World <laughs> Series MVP. Okay. Well, I will not follow you there. I will take Mookie because he is the best player in the series. And I think also there is, as you say, pivotal. I mean, literally pivotal in that the pivot hey! at second is going to be a big part of the series, whether he can do it, whether they trust him to do it. So I think if he gets the added narrative bonus of being plugged into a position that he hasn't regularly played in years, that will only help. We haven't really seen him, other than I guess one game, we haven't seen him just break out and have the kind of postseason that he could have. So I think he's kind of due, and I think maybe this will be that series. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, you know, you're you're breaking out third order record, and then within 50 minutes, it's he's due. Well, he's due because I have looked at the projections, and the projections say that he is the best player in Don't the series. Don't hedge. Lean into it, Ben. <laughs> you're yeah. you're a hot take artist at heart, Ben. Yeah, you hack. If the Dodgers do take this thing, I kind of think and hope that Kershaw will be the MVP of the series. I I picked Turner as my NLCS MVP, and he did hit a a big home run in that series, so there's no reason to swap. But because Kershaw's going in game one, because you know you're going to see a lot of him most likely in a a seven-game series, and because all the sentiment is on his side, if he does for finally put his postseason demons aside and no one can question his performance, then I think he will get a a leg up there. But going with Mookie. And I will go with Justin Turner. I think, first off, he's one of the few Dodgers who I know will play every day because he hits both lefties and righties. (laughs) Uh, So if I'm going to pick the Dodgers, I kind of need to pick one of those guys. I also think I don't know if I believe this is predictive necessarily going forward, but Turner has been one of the best batters in postseason history. He had the big home run against Milwaukee, but didn't really do much besides that. So I'm going to steal Ben's uh, motivation and say that I think Justin Turner's due. How about that? (laughs) You guys, you're infuriating. Uh, Bobby is apparently infuriated that that, uh, we're not picking Yasiel Puig. Bobby, do you have have takes? Do you have predictions you want to share? Just for the headline alone, MV Puig and then a picture of him licking the MVP trophy. Wow. Because that's a world that I want to live in. <laughs> that's the best take we've had. The the Kershaw winning World Series MVP would be a very pleasant column to write after the series. But if if Puig licks the, well, anything really, I think that might beat it. But you have a, so are you, are you picking the Dodgers if you're, if you're picking Puig for MVP or is this going to be a Bobby Richardson situation? Uh, I'll go Dodgers as well. Dodgers in six. I want to see okay. a parade also. So this is all just for me, Bowman. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So Zach has Dodgers in seven. Bobby has Dodgers in six. Ben and I both have Red Sox in six. Uh, did we miss anything else? I don't think so. Okay. I hope we get all a 1-1 split of the first two games before we come back and talk about them. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- crucially for you, that would that would guarantee three games in uh in LA. So Zach's going to be at the LA games. Uh, Jack McCluskey is going to be at the uh, Boston games for us. So look for all of our coverage throughout the rest of the series. And we'll talk to you again later this week after the the first couple of games. So 
Thanks for, for joining me, guys. Enjoy the games. Thank you. And that will just about do it for this edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for stitching together today's episode. Thanks to Yasiel Puig and Mookie Betts and all the rest of the Red Sox and Dodgers for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the first two games of the World Series, and we'll see you next time. As you spend more time at home on the couch this fall, make sure it's time well spent with a burrow. Burrow sofas are handmade with sturdy hardwood and fabric that is naturally scratch and stain resistant. Burrow's designed for comfort and shipping is always fast and free. Get your living room ready for fall and save $75 on a new sofa by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB.